This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Self-forgiveness is the healing balm you need to heal your wounds and your shame. In The Emotionally Abused Woman, therapist Beverly Engel introduced the concept of emotional abuse, one of the most subtle yet devastating forms of abuse within a relationship. Now Engel exposes the techniques the abuser uses to break your spirit and gain control, and guides you in how to free yourself from the shame that can keep you from the life and the love that you deserve. By using your deepest fears against you, the abuser strips you of self-esteem, dignity, and humanity, making you feel unworthy and utterly powerless to escape. But you possess a potent tool with which to combat shame, self-compassion. In these pages, Engel shows you how to access it. Using her highly effective shame reduction program, she helps you jumpstart the process of recovery by offering specific steps to help you heal and regain self-confidence. An invaluable resource for both men and women who suffer from emotional abuse, as well as therapists and advocates, Escaping Emotional Abuse is a supportive, nurturing guide for anyone seeking to break the chains of shame and gain the emotional freedom to create healthier, lasting relationships. Valeria Tellis interviews Beverly Engel, the author of Escaping Emotional Abuse, Healing from the Shame You Don't Deserve. Beverly Engel is an internationally recognized psychotherapist and an acclaimed advocate for victims of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. The author of 24 self-help books, her latest book is entitled Escaping Emotional Abuse. Beverly's books have often been honored for various awards, including being a finalist in the Books for a Better Life Award. Her books have been translated into many languages, including Japanese, Spanish, Chinese, Korean, Greek, Turkish, and Lithuanian. In addition to her professional work, Beverly frequently lends her expertise to national television talk shows. She has appeared on Oprah, CNN, and Starting Over, and many other TV programs. She currently has a blog on the Psychology Today entitled The Compassion Chronicles. Engel is a licensed marriage and family therapist and has been practicing psychotherapy for 35 years. Meet Beverly at HealMyShame.com. Here's the interview with Beverly Engel. In your own words, who is Beverly Engel? Well, I'm a psychotherapist and I specialize in working with victims of abuse, either 
emotional, physical, or sexual, um, and abuse that occurred either in childhood or adulthood. Uh, I'm also a, an author. I've written 22 self-help books, and um, most of them are on abuse issues or on empowerment for women in particular. I'm a nature lover, and I'm an artist. I love to paint with acrylic paint, uh, abstract paintings. I'm a very spiritual person, and I guess that's who I am. You mentioned in your book, you said something like, emotional abuse is an assault on the psyche and on the soul. Yes. So my question to you is, what is the soul, Beverly? What is to be spiritual? Well, I don't know that I can define soul. I don't know that anyone can, really. But when I say spiritual, I mean, uh, as opposed to maybe religious, which is a more organized uh, way of honoring the spirit or honoring God, whoever you, you know, whatever you want to call it. Spirituality for me is is just really connecting with myself, my higher self, listening, listening to my higher self, uh, listening to what's right for me, listening for wisdom, uh, connecting with nature, trying to be present as much as I can, and just a real honoring of myself and of, of nature and of other people. And I'm wondering if you connect this relationship to nature, to the higher self, to yourself, to love itself. Yes, yes. I would say probably that's the most important thing. But, you know, I think it goes, well, I guess love encompasses everything. So sure, that would be the, the right answer. For you, the question I want to ask that I do ask a lot of my guests, most of them actually, is unconditional self-love. Do you believe in such a practice? Is this something that's realistic, really? Um, well, I start with people who who are far from having unconditional self-love. One of my steps in my books to recovering from emotional abuse is, is to start having self-compassion. Yeah. I think that's the first step. And I really don't know that it's possible to have unconditional self-love. I think maybe, you know, if you're a highly spiritual person, if you're a monk or somebody who devotes their entire life to spirituality, that maybe that's possible. But I think that's a hard thing to achieve. And I certainly wouldn't expect that from the people that I work with. I often hear that, that unconditional self-love is, I mean, it's a wonderful practice and idea, but it's, everyone says that. I'm not sure if I'm there. I'm not sure if I can get there someday. I'm wondering why. I always ask why. Well, again, if I start with who I, who I work with, there are people who don't love themselves at all, right. okay? So if you start at, at zero, then at expecting yourself to reach unconditional self-love, which would be like 100, <laughs> yes. I just think, it's, I just think sure. it's too much to ask. I think that we all have critical voices inside our head at times. People who are abused tend to have a, a very loud critical voice inside their head that's constant. Mm. where they're replaying the, the shaming and critical messages they heard as a child or in their adult life with an abusive partner. And so I work toward helping them to turn off that critical self, self-critical self voice and install a more nurturing voice inside of themselves, a more nurturing 
supportive voice. And that's a that's an effort in itself to install that voice to replace the critical voice. And most people, you know, don't ever get to a place where they're not having to contend at some point in their life, uh, at some part of the day, with uh, questioning themselves or being critical of themselves, comparing themselves with other people. Um, I just think that unconditional self-love, again, if your entire existence is based, is is meditating and, you know, focused on your spirituality, I think those people can achieve it. But otherwise, I think people who are living in the modern world would have a very hard time achieving unconditional self-love. I think the goal is having self-compassion, installing a nurturing inner voice to replace that critical voice. And I think if you can do that, you're really ahead of the game. And it goes back to being kind. It's being kind to yourself. It always goes back to that. It's interesting, kindness. And you do mention that as one of the steps in your program. I think you call it, I have it here somewhere, self-kindness. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The purpose of life, what do you think the purpose of the human experience is? Gosh, you're asking these questions and I don't know that there's even an answer, but uh, I'll just give you my personal opinion. I believe that we're here to, I do believe in reincarnation. So I do believe in any kind of version of that that you want to believe in. But I do believe that we're here to become the kindest people that we can be and that we to become the best version of ourselves that we can be. And that we have an opportunity in this life to make up for some mistakes in the past, to learn from mistakes in the past, and to keep evolving, to keep evolving into a, a, a kinder, better, or compassionate person. Do you believe that we all have a purpose, a unique gift to explore in this lifetime? I think we all have a gift, but I don't think that's our entire purpose. I think our, our purpose can be to undo some of the harm we've done in the past. Again, to learn certain lessons that we haven't learned before. I think we come into the world with a purpose that that is based on past lives or based on a choice we made when we entered the world. Uh, we may have chosen to be born to a certain kind of person so that we could learn something from that person or that person can learn something from us. I do hear a lot about this unique gift or talent that we can explore those lessons Mm -hmm. and we can teach ourselves and others. So in your case, it might be psychotherapy, helping others to understand themselves. When did you discover that? Well, I was abused myself as a child, physically, sexually, and emotionally. And uh, like most therapists that I know, uh, I wanted to learn how to heal myself. I wanted to learn about psychology so that I could, you know, heal myself. Uh, That was my original purpose. I also was a very open-hearted, loving child and always wanted to help other people. Uh, And so uh, I thought I'd become a nurse or a teacher but I went down the nursing uh, path for a short time and went on a field trip to a hospital and watched them take blood and, and watched them 
he uh, put bandages on, on bleeding people and I fainted. So I figured maybe that wasn't the right path for me. Yeah. I knew I wanted to help people, but I figured out that nursing wasn't it. So it was a combination of wanting to heal myself and having a very powerful need to help others. You actually mentioned that, and I heard before that we have chosen the experiences and the lessons that we want to go through in order to learn love, basically, unconditional love. Do you believe that, that we chose to go through these uh, abusive relationships and um, tragedies and violence? It has been my case, too. Well, I hesitate to say that because there's so much victim blaming going on in the world, and that kind of sounds like we're blaming the victims. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Right. I was talking, I don't think we choose to be abused. Mm. I don't think we choose to be mistreated. That's that's our choice. Right. I think that when I talk about like entering this world with a lesson to learn, I think the lesson is much broader than issues about abuse. Okay. And so and I never wanted to saddle somebody with the idea that they are responsible in any way for their abusive experiences. They, they're, they're so full of you know, self-blame, which is the opposite of self-compassion or self-love. And so that just kind of leads people into the idea of, of blaming themselves for the abuse. And I don't agree with that. In fact, I don't ever, I'm you know, happy to talk to you today about spirituality, but I don't ever talk to my clients about spirituality. Mm, right. I feel like there's a, it's important to make a distinction between spirituality and psychology Right. And to not impose my beliefs on a client. So I wouldn't share the idea at all, even that um, of reincarnation. That's my belief system any more than I would if I was, a, you know, another religion. I wouldn't impose that on a client. So I just like to keep that separate if possible. So talk to me for a moment about the greatest misunderstandings about healing or recovery. Well, I think one of the greatest uh, misunderstandings is that you get a, a formula, you get a step-by-step -step answer to the problem, and you follow those steps, and then you get healed. Right. And you can do it quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, healing, depending yeah. upon your, your life experiences, healing takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. And there shouldn't be any time limit on it, and you shouldn't be pressuring yourself to make changes. Um, that's not being self-loving. That's not self-acceptance uh, to be pressuring yourself. So that's one misunderstanding for sure. Uh, another is that somebody else can heal you, mm -hmm. that somebody else can, you know, give you either the tools or somebody else can do it to you. You know, it really is an inside job and a therapist or other kind of advisor can advise you and support you. But you have to do the work. Uh, you have to do, you know, you have to heal yourself. Um, so I think those are the two most important things to address. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? Well, in the context in which we're speaking, I would say freedom is one of the most wonderful things to experience. That is, that is finally being able to be free from the majority of the pain that you've been carrying throughout your life that you're free to make choices, uh, you're free to make healthy choices, and you're free to live your life in the way that you choose to. 
so freedom kind of is the end game for me with clients. You know, if you can be free from a lot of the symptoms, if you can be free, for example, of constantly being reminded of the past, if you can be free to move on, and that doesn't mean that you won't sometimes still suffer, but you're free to move on and create a life that you want to create. So I would say that's freedom. You wrote the book, Escaping Emotional Abuse, Healing from the Shame You Don't Deserve. Two initial questions. How did you become a writer? And what was the inspiration, intention, and the purpose of writing this book? Well, this, the first, my very first book was, was an accident. I was a psychotherapist who was working with abuse victims. And suddenly, this was 30 years ago, yeah. uh, there were people, uh, more and more people were coming forward um, who, who were sexually abused. And they were seeking help and they were seeking therapy. And I found that I was repeating the same kind of information when somebody would first come in the door. And so I was, I decided to write just a pamphlet to kind of explain some of the basics so we wouldn't have to waste our time going through a whole lot of things. And the pamphlet just grew and grew and grew and became a book. So that's one answer. The other is I, I wasn't very good at anything growing up. I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good um, in math at all. I wasn't good in history. I wasn't good hardly in anything. But when I got further in school and we started writing, I was good at writing. And I wasn't good at writing fiction. I was good at writing nonfiction. I was good at writing compositions and um, essays. Yeah. And it was very, very specific to compositions and essays. Yeah. And I had a very, very strong, powerful voice when I wrote compositions and essays. So I got a little bit of encouragement. Again, I wasn't good at anything else. And so I hadn't gotten any encouragement in my life. Uh, and I had, a, like I said, an emotionally abusive mother who was constantly critical. So it was the one thing I was complimented on. And so it was a natural talent. Uh, and it felt really, really good to have found something that I could do well. So I was I think that was my gift that I was born with to to be a writer and uh, specifically to be a writer of nonfiction. In your book, you wrote emotional abuse is one of the most difficult types of abuse to identify because it is so hidden, insidious and confusing. So my initial questions on that is, what is emotional abuse? Um, or more specifically, what constitutes emotional abuse? And also the forms, how do we identify what it looks like to be emotionally abused? Well, over the overarching definition that I use is that emotional abuse is like brainwashing. Yeah. Uh, it just slowly erodes the victim's sense of self their self-confidence, and even their trust in themselves. They start to doubt their own perceptions. They may even start to doubt their very sanity. And technically, emotional abuse is any non-physical behavior that is intended to control or intimidate or demean, humiliate, isolate another person. And I divide abusers into two categories, intentional and unintentional, which we can talk about later. But all emotional abuse is about control. Even if the person isn't intending to do it, it's controlling behavior. And 
there's all there's a whole huge in my book I list all the different types of emotional abuse. It's everything from verbal abuse to having unreasonable expectations to a constant criticism, gaslighting, which we've been hearing more because of politics, yeah. crossing boundaries, stalking, being overly jealous, refusing to let your partner go anywhere because of your jealousy. There's just a whole lot of different types, the silent treatment, but there's a huge, huge list of the different types of emotional abuse. But basically, it's one partner trying to control the other, and it's a brainwashing of the of the victim. That's so interesting because sometimes it's very subtle and because we are not, we, are, we don't know, we are confused. Yeah, it has been my case. Yeah, it was really tough, challenging to know uh, what was true and what was not true. Absolutely. Confusion is a, is a huge part of emotional abuse because it's so disorienting. Uh, victims of emotional abuse are very often in kind of a dissociative state. They're not even in their body. It, they're so overwhelmed that they kind of, you know, leave their body like a lot of victims do. And they're disoriented and confused. They have a very difficult time concentrating or making decisions. So, yeah, it's very disorienting. I wonder if um, we all have been at some level, Beverly, emotionally abused or abused because sometimes I see abusers and I don't understand. And I kind of ask that question, how did they become abusers? Usually they mm -hmm. are abused themselves, right? Yes, yes, yes. And in my book, I focus on shame. Yeah. And most abusers were very deeply shamed. Even It's even more important than recognizing that they've been abused. Um, they were often very, very shamed. And that doesn't necessarily look like abuse, If you have a parent who's always disappointed in you, who's, you know, rolls their eyes at your at your behavior, uh, who compares you to other children and says, you know, I wish you were more like Johnny. What's wrong with you? Why are you acting that way? You're such a disappointment to me. People might not describe that as emotional abuse. It is, but it's more focused on shaming the child. If someone's deeply, deeply shamed, especially male children, uh, females as well, but especially males, if they're deeply shamed or humiliated, they tend to build up a protective wall around them to protect them from any further shame. Mm -hmm. And so they end up being people who can't take any criticism mm -hmm. or any suggestions. Uh, they can't be wrong. They can't admit they're wrong. They just can't take any more shame. Uh, and so they become these walled off people. And it's very hard for someone like that to take in love, to take in anything positive. Mm. Uh, and they have to kind of isolate and cocoon themselves so that they don't feel any more shamed. And that's what most abusers are doing. Uh, they're 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 going to criticize you before you have a chance to criticize them. They're on the defense. They're going to make you wrong. So you can't make them wrong. And so they don't have to feel any more shame. Could that turn into narcissism? Absolutely. That's kind of the classic definition of narcissism. You know, we think of narcissists as people who are overly confident, you know, charismatic. They think that they're the best person around. Right. You know, they're cocky. 
but that's just the defense. Mm-hmm. That's just what they're hiding behind. Underneath that is a very insecure person, uh, a person who has a very fragile ego, but they're very good at pretending that they are, you know, stronger, more powerful, you know, more competent than they really are. Uh, so, yeah, that that does connect with narcissism for sure. How do we distinguish them from I think they call sociopath or psychopath? They share characteristics, too. Right, Beverly? As a sociopath or a psychopath, it's kind of a continuum. Narcissism, sociopath, psychopath. By, by the time you get to psychopath, you're really a dangerous person. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, it's a sociopath or a psychopath is someone who just does not believe in society's rules. They've created their own rules. They've created what works for them. And so they very are often people who break the law, uh, who challenge the law, who just, you know, do horrible things. Yeah. Um, if you, and, and very often they're described as not having a conscience. I don't know that that's possible not to have a conscience, but again, they're so bent on not feeling shame that they, I think they're able to block out any criticism or anybody calling them on their behavior. And so it looks like they don't have a conscience. I'm wondering why they're still attracted very close to those, let's say the mother or the father who have instilled that in them. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Um, Children who grow up with loving parents and have a decent childhood very often are able to grow up and be healthy and to separate from their parents emotionally and create their own life. Mm-hmm. But people who are abused very often aren't capable of growing up and maturing and emotionally separating. It's ironic that the very people who are most abused are very often still tied to their parents. Right. And it's because they're still wanting to try to get what they didn't get growing up. Right. They're still looking for the acceptance, the approval, the love that they didn't get. So, yeah, that can create a very strong tie with uh, even abusive parents. They're still looking for that love. How do we approach them? Well, it's my responsibility to try to help them, but I cannot force anyone to change themselves or make that choice, the commitment to healing. So I'm wondering if you have some suggestions to give. You mean, to, suggestions for how to reach someone who's being abused, you mean? Who has been abused and is still carrying those patterns. It's still yeah. trying to, yeah, looking for the love and approval of those who have abused them. Yeah, we, I don't think we would approach somebody about that. But if you, if you know that somebody's being abused, yeah. um, we hear stories all the time about battered women or about women and men who are being emotionally abused and their friends or their family encourage them to leave their partner yeah. uh, and they they have a difficult time doing it. Uh, I don't think you can talk somebody into leaving a partner, but you can, you know, go to them and say, I just want you to know I'm always here for you. Mm. I love you. I support you no matter what you do, but I want you to know I'm here for you. You can call me anytime, day or night, if you're having a difficult time. You know, I love you and I just want to help you. I just want to be here. I think that's the best way to support someone. You know, and as far as going to therapy, that definitely is the person's choice. You know, you can just say things like, it makes me so sad to hear, to see you suffering. I see you suffering. I'm not asking you to tell me what's going on at your business. But I just want you to know that I see you suffering and it makes me sad. 
and I want to help you in any way I can. Does it happen, emotional abuse, does it happen more to women than men or from your experiences the same? Yeah, historically, it's been more women than than men being abused, but it's changing. Research is showing that there's an increased number of men who are being abused. And I do find that in my practice, that more and more men are coming into therapy because they're being emotionally abused. Abused by women or abused yes, by other men? by, by women. Uh, if it's a gay relationship, you know, a male relationship, it's the male partner. Right. But in heterosexual relationships, they're being abused by their female partner. Yeah, that's sad to hear. I do find women to be kinder, um, I mean, intuitively or naturally. But, but women can have personality disorders just like men do. Like narcissism is a personality disorder. And it's very often mostly men who, who suffer from it. But females suffer from several different personality disorders, but one in particular that causes them that they're in, they're in the unintentional abuser category. They're not intending to abuse their partner. They just feel so out of control of their life that they have to be overly controlling of their partner. And they're constantly blaming their partner for their own pain. Mm. So a healthy person, if you're anxious or you're uncomfortable, you would go inside yourself and ask yourself, what's going on with me? Right. But an unhealthy person gets anxious or uncomfortable and they automatically look outside themselves and say, what did you do to make me feel uncomfortable? Right. Okay, and so there are females who have a particular personality disorder and constantly if they're uncomfortable and anxious and they're anxious a great deal of the time, they automatically go to their partner. You made me feel this way. If you hadn't done this, I wouldn't be feeling this. And that's why I love uh, the idea of taking responsibility and not embracing or inviting this idea of being a victim or survivor. I don't like those two words. I know you mentioned that you use the word victim to make that clear. So talk to me for a moment about that, this idea of um, accepting even or using the word victim. Well, I, I like to use the word victim because there is, like I mentioned, there's so much victim blaming in our culture. Yeah. And, you know, if a woman gets raped, people automatically say, well, why was she there? Or why was she dressed the way she is? Or, yeah. you know, why did she continue seeing that guy? And that takes the responsibility away from the abuser. Yeah. You know, it's the abuser who did it. Yeah. It's not, she's not the one who did it. Right. You know, now I, I won't even get into arguing with you about this idea that we're responsible for everything. I think that's a really important spiritual belief. And, you know, I commend you for having that. But victims are, are blamed so often. And victims also tend to blame themselves. If something goes wrong, they automatically say to themselves, it's my fault. Okay. Abusers, on the other hand, like I said, they say it's your fault, right? Yeah. So victims are constantly blaming themselves. On top of that, with emotional abuse, they're constantly being blamed by their partner. So they come to me already feeling so bad about themselves, already feeling so small and guilty and shamed and inadequate that I want to help them see that that was not their fault that they were victimized. 
Yeah. They didn't cause that. They didn't they didn't slap themselves. They didn't criticize themselves. The the abuser did those things. Right. Uh, and I want to encourage them to actually feel some anger about that initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anger is a way that it's not where you want to get stuck, but it definitely is a way to, for females in particular to become empowered, to push away the shame, to push away the, the self-blame and say, no, it's not me. It's him. You know, he's the one who did that to me. With psychology, especially, it's I think it's really important that we don't blame victims, and we all, we like we prefer to call victims survivors. But what's a survivor? A survivor is somebody who has overcome a victimization, and so I think it's up to the victim to decide when they are a survivor. You know, it, that's their choice. That's their determination. When do I now feel like a survivor? When I have when have I overcome and of course you never completely overcome it but when have I overcome my victimization when have I moved past it now I'm a survivor so I say let the person decide whether or not you know when they are a survivor Um, because it's again it's so easy we don't want victims to to what we call wallow in their pain we're uncomfortable when people are in their pain why is that that's probably because we're uncomfortable in our pain. Mm, right. Okay. True. We get critical of people who are who we see as victims mm. because we see it as weakness and we don't like weakness in ourselves. Mm. So it's all projection. We're projecting onto victims our stuff. And it's pretty negative stuff that we project onto them. Yeah. Okay. So so I take a pretty strong stance. But I understand your point of view. Um, and that is a very strong spiritual belief, and that's great. But working with victims, that, you know, initially at first, I want to really get across the message that this was not your fault. You know, you didn't, you know, yes, you may have chosen this person, and let's look at maybe why you chose this person. And many people who get in emotionally abusive relationships have a history of abuse, And so it's important to make that connection, to see that, you know, you either witnessed your father emotionally abusing your mother or your parents emotionally abused you or you were sexually abused. And that's why you may have been vulnerable to being attracted to an abuser. But that doesn't mean it's your fault. Okay, you just want to make help them make that connection so they can heal their childhood and then heal that tendency to be attracted to abusive people. But there's a lot of people who've been emotionally abused who didn't have a, a, an abusive childhood. Mm. We're perfectly healthy people when they met this person. Abusers can be extremely charismatic, extremely loving. They're really good at putting a, you know, the, a partner up on a pedestal and telling her how wonderful she is. There's a thing called love bombing where, you know, a woman's used to guys not, you know, committing to them and men treating her really crappy. And here comes this guy and he puts her on a pedestal. He says she's the greatest thing he's ever met and he wants to marry her and he loves her unconditionally. And that's, you know, that's pretty attractive to a lot of people (laughs) who've had had a lot of negative experiences with men. So I just like to stay clear of, you know, blaming the victim in any way. But there's that point where, to me, feeling empowered only really came that the feeling, the embodiment of that when I 
took responsibility for my own feelings, my own life. Everything that happened and didn't happen to me, I could do something about <laughs> about it. Mm-hmm. I have the choice to change that, to do something different. And that's mm-hmm. when I found that um, that place of empowerment. Talk to me for a moment about the shame reduction program. I know you have been already discussing some of the uh, the steps and strategies. But I, I love the anger expression. That's an interesting one that you just talked about briefly. Anger helps us to push away shame. Talk to me about self-forgiveness and self-kindness. Yes. Well, self-forgiveness involves, it's, a, it's connected to self-compassion. But self-forgiveness is really looking at why you acted in certain ways. And this is not to excuse your behavior, but people who are being abused very often don't pay attention to their children enough. I mean, if you're being constantly worn down and you're maybe even dissociated and you're out of your body, you're not going to notice your children that much. You're kind of out of it. And maybe you don't notice that your teenager is starting to drink alcohol and getting into trouble. Maybe you don't notice that one of your children is sad and depressed And so what I focus on in self-forgiveness is to help them see that it's understandable that the abuse would have an effect on you and that it would show up in things like you not being maybe as good a parent as you could have been. Uh, It might show up in your coping mechanisms. Maybe you start drinking alcohol too much to cope. Um, maybe you get depressed and you're just not able to get up and clean the house and go to work and do the things you used to do. It might take the form of you getting angry and arguing back with your partner and your children, seeing the two of you arguing and it affecting the children. So, you know, you can't be abused without having some effects of, of the abuse. And often, again, it's depression it's, it's confusion. Uh, and often you, you go to some f- kind of coping mechanism like alcohol or drugs or overeating uh, to cope with your life. And so self-forgiveness is, is gaining the self-understanding to say, I understand why I did these things. And so therefore I forgive myself. I had good reasons for it. And so I forgive myself for these actions. Again, that doesn't mean that gives me carte blanche to continue the behavior. In fact, self-forgiveness kind of frees us often from the behavior. You know, if we can forgive ourselves for something, very often we don't need to do it anymore. But it's that self-critical voice that we want to quiet and install again a nurturing voice that says, it's understandable that you started drinking too much. You were were freaked out, you were depressed, you you, you were suicidal. You were in a really bad place. No wonder you did these things. It's understandable. And those key words, it's understandable, are just like magic when somebody can really get it that I understand why I acted that way. I'm not I'm not making an excuse. It was wrong. But boy, do I understand it now. I have a few more questions for you. Those are the ending questions. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? No, I just want to stress, and I know I've stressed it a lot, that uh, in the book, I say that, you know, if you're not in the place where you're ready to leave an emotionally abusive relationship, 
Um, please don't judge yourself for that. You have your reasons why it's difficult. And it's extremely difficult to leave an emotionally abusive relationship. Again, you're, you're probably confused. You're probably blaming yourself. You're probably still trying to make him happy. You're probably afraid of starting your life anew. You're probably worried about how it's going to affect the children. So uh, I never want to judge somebody who's not ready to leave. In fact, you may never leave. Uh, so please don't judge yourself for that. But I hope that, you know, through reading the book, you get to the place where you believe that you can create a better life for yourself, even with small steps like reaching out maybe to a support group, uh, going back to school, starting art, you know, creating some art, uh, going to a spiritual practice, doing something for you that's going to make you stronger so that you can leave or so that you can stay and be able to, to create a different way of reacting. Success. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? I think if you're successful, you're able to do what you love. You're able to do something that you really enjoy and love and you can get into it fully. And, you know, your day just you've heard this about passion. Your day just goes by because you're so involved in what you're doing. I don't measure success in terms of money or accomplishments or accolades from other people. It's more, am I, am I happy with what I'm doing? Am I free to do what I want? What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Well, the hardest lesson was to realize that I had become the very person that I didn't want to become. I became like my abusive mother. I was critical and judgmental. Uh, I pushed people away with my criticism and my being judgmental, and I didn't even know it. That's why I talk about the two categories of intentional and unintentional. I had no idea. The unintentional abuser is somebody who's repeating the patterns from his childhood, and he doesn't know it. He or she doesn't even realize it. And I did that. I I couldn't stand my mother. She. I always saw how critical she was and judgmental, and I would stand up to, for you know, for people that she was critical of. And I never wanted to be like that. And as I mentioned earlier, I had this loving, compassionate nature. So I saw myself as, you know, better than her. And then I discovered that I was no better than her. I was, yes, compassionate, but I could get critical and judgmental and was really hurtful to the, the people closest, closest to me, especially when I was drinking. Um, I don't drink anymore, but um, I, my mother was an alcoholic, and that was another thing. I started drinking too much and got really close to being an alcoholic myself. So my biggest lesson was that I needed to look at myself and see, you know, that I had become the very thing that I most hated. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Well, it's interesting with this this virus, you know, people, I have been thinking about that. Uh, and I have done, I've done some things, I've completed some things that I had left hanging. Yeah. Uh, and that felt really good. Yeah. But, and I guess I would reach out to more people, although I'm doing that, I would reach out to people I, maybe I haven't talked to, I'd make some connections with people I have, you know, neglected. But overall, and generally speaking, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make any major change. 
My last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Well, as I said, I think life is about learning lessons. No matter what your spiritual beliefs, I think that life's about lessons and that those lessons are really blessings. I haven't really thought of this other than the life lessons. I think that everybody hurts and everybody deserves to be loved and everybody deserves to be forgiven. It doesn't mean that you stay with an abusive person and with, uh, you know, the abuse victims, they do tend to, you know, have maybe too much compassion for the abuser and not enough for themselves. But overall, I do, I do understand why people act the way they do. And I do have compassion for everybody. I do think that everybody deserves, I'll put it this way, I think everybody deserves compassion. Maybe it's going too far to say forgiving because some some people would have a very hard time forgiving some crimes, for example. But I think everybody deserves compassion. Yes. Uh, for sure. Yes. And I think the highest achievement is to be a compassionate person. I think that's the greatest achievement. Yes, and I agree a thousand percent, yeah. Thank you so much, Beverly, for your wisdom, sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, um, your compassionate, beautiful presence for the work that you do to help us <laughs> to understand how these thought patterns, trauma, and all these, the pain works. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for your great interview. Your thought-provoking. Your thought <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Okay. Well, you can go to Amazon or any online bookstore, or I encourage you to go to independent bookstores uh, and look for my book, Escaping Emotional Abuse. Uh, I have a website called Heal My Shame, and on that um, you'll find... Uh, articles, blogs, lots of information about, about abuse and shame. And then you can email me directly at Beverly at beverlyengel.com. And I have another website, which is beverlyengel.com. Wonderful. I'll have those links on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye for now, Beverly. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Beverly Engel and her work, please visit HealMyShame.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.